Today's podcast is brought to you by 13 Star Designs. 13 Star Designs is a unique vinyl and embroidery shop where you can purchase customizable quirky home decorations and the fan favorite, the world famous dick mark, the first penis shaped bookmark. And coming soon, they will be the official retailer of the Podcast Was On Fire merch. Shop today at facebook.com slash 13stardesigns. That's 13 spelled out, Star Designs. everybody i'm josh i'm Alyssa. we're back with the next episode of the podcast was on fire and it wasn't my fault a spoiler free run through of the massive dresden file series written by jim butcher all right we're, today we're discussing the second third of the first novel stormfront i go through chapters 10 through 20 and yeah, some really interesting stuff going on in this chunk. I'm very excited to get through it. Um, any uh, starting thoughts over there, Liz? We have a lot going on. There's a lot of a lot going on. Uh, Dresden is in, uh, he's up against it. He's got basically mm-hmm. every, everyone in Chicago is mad at him. <laughs> and uh, we'll see how he gets out of it, or if he gets out of it. Spoiler alert, there's 17 novels after this one. I bet he's going to get out of it, but who knows? <laughs> um, he, uh, he's pissed off the mob mm-hmm. um, and Johnny Marcone. He's pissed mm-hmm. off a vampire and, yes. who's also a madam. Um, and Murphy's generally just fussy with him, which why wouldn't you be? Um, so he's got, everybody's pretty much mad at him. And um, we're trying to figure out, he's got two cases right now that he's working on. One is a missing persons case uh, for Monica. No last name. It's Monica Sells. Uh, she does have a last name now, but she didn't. And that's a way cooler name. So I'm going to call her Monica. No last name. Um, and she was her husband disappeared. But we think he was out at the lake house boning somebody. He was doing some mortal sporting, uh, which to fairies, that means that he was having sex with somebody. So somebody was up there having sex. And um, that seems like a pretty cut and dry case. Huh? The other one. Uh, we got some magical murders. People are getting their hearts ripped out magically, and that is uh, terrifying. Mm-hmm. So that catches us up. He's just leaving the Velvet Room where he had his run-in with uh, the Vampress, Bianca. And uh, yeah, you want to get us into it, Liz? Yes. All right. So we come out of the Velvet Room, Bianca's place. Uh, he hops into George, the loaner he got from George, the tow truck driver, and it is a wood panel Studebaker, which is delightfully dated. And even in 2000, this would be a very old car. I don't know what year Studebakers were stopped being made, but it was a while. Uh, he stops at a payphone because, you know, it's 2000. Payphones are everywhere. And uh, calls, calls the number he received for Linda Randall. Rings several times, and it's the Becketts, and he's... You know, says, introduces himself. Hi, I'm, I'm Harry Dresden. Uh, I'm a private investigator. And she makes that really cliche joke that in every, I, pretty much every movie that there's a private investigator, they say, oh, investigating my privates. She says, investigating my privates, Mr. Dresden. I like you already. It makes him a little uncomfortable. And, and uh, 
he says, you know, she says she's not occupied at the moment. And he starts asking about Jennifer Stanton. And he hears sounds in the background. She doesn't want to talk about it. But what he's discovered in those sounds is that she is at the airport. You know, red zones and no parking and, you know, moving along sort of announcements. So she says, you know. Like, they, they definitely don't still do that. But when did they stop? Like, the, the, my only frame of reference for those announcements is uh, when they're, the announcers are fighting uh, in Airplane, which is a great yeah. um, I but I, I, Like, was that a thing in the 90s? Like, how? I feel like, I feel like I've heard announcements at airports, you know. You've been around, you've been you, around airports a little bit longer than me, if you know what I mean. Hey, no, not that many years. But um, I feel like maybe internationally there were i don't know how many in the state so many because i've been to o'hare and i don't remember such announcements at o'hare but it's different now because at so many airports that you have the uh the folks that the airport police there are actually people there telling you get the fuck out of the white zone get it you know you know it's only this isn't a parking area because of the whole 9-11 and so this is pre-9-11 so maybe that's what it is it's definitely uh, the pre nine eleven thing is like every movie or show pre nine eleven where they uh-huh. do anything involving a uh, airport is just bananas. How crazy and right. how quickly things change. Yes, so quickly. Um, okay, so he heads over to the. He's figured she's at the airport, so he's going to try and find her. He heads over to O'Hare uh, in the wheezing old Studebaker, which I great visual. Um, so he parks. In front of the airport, which you used to be able to do. And he uh, sees the limo and he's trying to figure out if Linda's actually in there, finds another payphone and calls it. And he figures out that it is her. And uh, she hangs up on him again. And he walks over to the window and taps on the window. And again, we get another description of a woman that is just overdone. You know, beautiful eyes, the color of rain clouds, little too much eyeshadow and brilliant scarlet lipstick on Cupid's bowed lips. Her hair was medium brown drawn into a tight braid, made her cheeks look almost sharp, severe, except for the forelocks, which hung down close to her eyes in insolent disarray. So how many, sorry to interrupt, but how many Mm -hmm. people have you ever met with gray eyes? One. Like it, it, they exist, you know, but it's, it's like a yeah, light, it's light rare. blue, but mm-hmm. it's every book and movie. Everyone has gray eyes. It's just, it's, I, yes. Is, is it, is that, well, the, is that well, rain clouds, the color of rain clouds, it could be a blue gray, but you know, oh yeah. I mean, that's how the only way that gray eyes could exist. Right. But like, how is that an interesting characteristic? It's just weird. Such a weird trope that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like an insult too much eyeshadow. But he also calls her predatory. She had a predatory look to her, harsh and sharp. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but, you know, she, she was an, a bird of prey, basically, is kind of how I got that from. Um, so after we get this ridiculous explanation, he starts trying. He, she's like, well, you've got me cornered now, don't you? I'm at your mercy. And I like a man who just won't stop. Very femme fatale bullshit. And uh, he asked how he, she knew Jennifer Stanton. She said intimately. They worked for Bianca together. and um, They used to share. They were roommates. They even shared a bed. And they shared Tommy Tom. And uh, again, we get a very Dresden. 
very male gazy. Uh, she was driving me crazy. That voice of hers inspired the kind of dreams you wish you could remember more clearly in the morning. Her expression promised to show me things that you don't talk to other people, talk about with other people. If I would give her half a chance, oh, so spare me. It is like just ridiculous. But in his defense, she's she is intentionally trying to rile. No, she is, and that she's she's using sex as a weapon. Little I mean, pet bonus. Our reference I mean, there. That is, that's the thinnest possible shield. Oh um, yeah, but. For, but still yeah totally and uh she he says she was wearing the alley cat mask appealing to his glands instead of his brain and trying to distract him okay and so he he asks her more questions she thinks she's she Harry drops is, it all and thinks he's thinks he's a cop he's Harry like, is very easily distracted <laughs> yes he's very easily distracted by women throughout the book um and so he starts asking her questions. He, she talked to Jen on Wednesday, this, that, and the other. And uh, there's not really a lot she can tell him. And uh, he kind of, he's a little bit frustrated. But if she's got no information, he can't really drag something out of her that doesn't there. And he asks her, though, why the slut act? And... She says, because it's what I do, Mr. Dresden. For some people, it's drugs, booze. For me, it's orgasms, sex, passion. Just another addict. City's full of them. Another femme femme fatale cliche. Um, We get so many of those in this book. But the Becketts show up. And we get a description of them. That they are good looking. They look like they have the money and time to take care of themselves. He calls them a Nordic track couple. And Mr. Bennett, sorry, Mr. Beckett. Um, you want to take like a few seconds to explain what that reference means? Uh, Nordic. Okay. Yeah. They, they basically, they're, they're in good shape. Again, it's very dated. Um, they're in good shape. They look like they could be in an ad for health, basically. Yeah. Nordic uh, track was the nineties Peloton, basically. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Eighties um, and nineties, probably. Uh, but we, don't get a lot of description of what Mr. Beckett looks like other than that. We also don't get the sexualized description of Mrs. Beckett, which was, um, which is unusual. But uh, Mr. Beckett asks who he is. And uh, Linda says, just a friend, Mr. Beckett, a guy I used to see. She's creating more of a story. There's a lie here. And obviously, Harry realizes this. And we see Mrs. Beckett. And she has a calm face entirely devoid of emotion. He described her as empty, numb, dead, and just didn't know it yet. Uh, this is my, in my head, it's very, very, she's this good looking, in shape woman. All I see is like Stepford Wives. Um, very just blank. Nothing, nothing behind the eyes. Uh, and not in like a dumb way, but in a, in, a, in a just has nothing there. And Mrs. Beckett puts her hand on Linda's waif waist and the, the the gesture is described as too intimate and possessive for the hired help so linda not, might not be a call girl for bianca anymore she may very well still be in the sex industry uh and she's you know she puts him in the car and closes the door she says she doesn't want to get in trouble so get the hell out of there and he he reaches for her hand and grabs it and holds it holds it between his hands and he says as as an old lover might i supposed Harry doesn't have much experience with that shit, but he's trying to get her this stuff and kind of 
give her his card. So she, so she now is in possession of his card. And Mrs. Beckett's eyes are dead looking at him through the window. And then he goes inside into the cafe and, and realizes he's lamenting over the, the you know, he's, he's got no money. The white council is on his ass. And so he needs to get working on Monica Sell's case because he needs some money. Uh, so he had two areas of concern. Finding the killer and catch the killer before any more corpses showed up. And hopefully the white council won't put him to death. You know, a little bit here and there. Um, and he also is contemplating the black magic research that, that Murphy wanted him to do. So he decides, well, maybe I'll just start working on Monica Sal's missing husband case. A little bit easier. So he remembers that the pizza place. There's probably not that many pizza places in a small town like Lake Providence. So he tries to talk to the delivery man. Finds a payphone and finds out there was only one place near enough to have delivered. It's Pizza, pizza Express. He calls and he talks to Jack, who's the pizza driver, who is nervous. He's apparently has already talked to somebody about this. So somebody has beat Harry to the punch on this one. And uh, he gets a little bit more information about what happened out there. Apparently there was an orgy. Um, Because, you know, orgies at lake houses. And uh, he is, this kid is uncomfortable. But he also finds out that there was a photographer out there, which makes sense since Harry found this camera or the, sorry, this film canister. But he was, you know, it could have been just a neighbor taking, hot, taking dirty pictures or it could be a PI. He doesn't know. He's got no other additional information. And he, at this point, he, he tallies the score for the evening and says, enigmas, lots. Harry, zero. So he's, investigation for Monica is basically, he thinks it's, it's just a cheating husband, it sounds like. And, you know, he calls it an advanced case of male menopause, basically a midlife crisis, what I think he's going through there. Um, but again, it's, it's hmm. genderizing it for, genderizing it for no reason. It just, yeah. It's just a weird. It is odd. It's, it's, we, it's more weird than really even problematic. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly today's, by today's standards, but it's just, it's just weird. Yeah. I, I, I agree. So he heads back home. He gets home. And as he's uh, going, gets out of the car, some dude was waiting for him with a baseball bat. He takes a swing at him, hits him in the head, and sends him careening down his stairs to the front door, to his front door of his basement apartment. Uh, puts, dude puts his foot on the back of his neck and uh, swings the bat right by his head and hits the cement. And in a very, very... Noir, Dick Tracy kind of vibe. Listen up, Dresden, my attacker said. His voice was rough, low, purposefully hoarse. You got a big nose. Stop sticking it where it doesn't belong. You got a big mouth. Stop talking to people you don't need to talk to. Or we're going to shut that mouth of yours. He waited a dramatic, a melodramatically appropriate moment and then added, permanently. So cheesy. So cliche gangster mob hitman. Like, come on. Uh, but, okay, so, well, there's a wonder there. Uh, so he goes inside, he, his head is spinning a little and he tells himself, you're not some poor rabbit Dresden. You're a wizard of the old school, a spell slinger of the highest caliber. You're not going to roll over for some schmuck with a baseball bat because he tells you to. Great. I do like that spell slinger of the highest caliber. That is pretty rad. Oh, it's a, it's a great line. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I love 
James Marsters. He's incredibly talented and wonderful. Mm-hmm. But he says Spellslinger. Yeah, which <laughs> is not great. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple of points where he's the way he pronounces things. But but you know what? I can't blame him. I pronounce things very very strange. Oh oh, absolutely. It was just it was just funny because that's such a great line that I remember. Yeah. It stands um, out because it's a great line. It, no, it was, yeah. But it was just pronunciation. I get it. Uh, okay, so he staggers into the kitchen and he he makes himself a, a herbal remedy, but also takes aspirin because herbal remedies are well and good, but I don't like to take chances. But he also, working with that same principle, grabs a Smith & Wesson 38 Chiefs special. Uh, I don't know what the Chiefs is. I don't know what a 38 special is. Basically, it's this little revolver, sticks it in his pocket because you know what? When somebody comes with a bat... Somebody might come with something more. Uh, so it's tough to beat a gun for discouraging men with a baseball bat, which is great. So and it, as Lissy mentioned last week, uh, I've been trying for years to get her to start reading this. Uh, <laughs> Only a year or so. Yeah, that's fair. This, this uh, saga. And the best way I've described it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's a wizard with a staff in one hand and a gun in the other. Uh, a wizard PI with a staff in one hand and a gun in the other. It's just a is such a great visual, but B it's just a great. Yeah, again, I liken it to uh, the uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders, where use oh, whatever yes. tools at your use whatever yes. tools you have at your disposal. You know, the guy's got a he's got a sword. You only have a whip. Shoot him in the sh- shoot him, uh, and then move on. So yep. uh, having all the tools you can possibly have, just a great way to go through. Oh, it's, it's fantastic, and that no, and that. That is, it is a pretty accurate description. Uh, okay, so he's got a headache. He's a little shaky. He goes down to his workroom and he starts, he says, and he's starting to figuring out how to rip out someone's heart out of his chest from 50 miles away. Who says I never do anything fun on a Friday night? We're back to him having no freaking hobbies. Like, it's a Friday night. He's doing, he's going to do some black magic, which is kind of great. Not going to lie. Kind of great. Living if you can do it. Exactly. Uh, so um, he heads down to the lab and he, he gets after it. He, um, he spends all night figuring out how the murders were done. Um, takes him 12 or 14 hours, he says. And he, he mentions going over the figures, um, which to me sounds like, I mean, he mentions it. It's his equation, um, which kind of reference me and makes it think about like a physics equation to figure out where you get the power from. One of the really cool aspects of magic in the Dresden verse is it basically not completely, but basically follows the laws of physics, your willpower, your energy is going into the spell. You're not creating it from nowhere. Um, now obviously it's magic. It has to come. There is some of that going on. Um, but you know, he, he talks later in the saga about, you know, a fireball doesn't burn in a neat circle. It, it's a fire. You're, you're burning the house down um, and, you know, and stuff like that, where mm-hmm. it, you have to obey the laws of physics. Ma- force is still mass times acceleration, no matter how you get, <laughs> how you get that acceleration going. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think when you talk about how you become a stronger wizard or a more powerful wizard, in a lot of cases, I think a good chunk of that is just being more efficient mm-hmm. with your energy, like harnessing, you know, using that willpower better. You know, but I think it might also more. be like being in shape for it. 
Oh, yeah. You know, because I was thinking about that. Because, like, if you have, like, because if it's so physically draining, you need practice. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if that's for real, but obviously it's magic isn't real. But, hey. Who says? Okay, sorry. This is a fantasy novel, so we don't know about the realisticness. Realism? It's a documentary series. That's right. It is It is a memoir. Um. So, uh, I... I Obviously, it's still magic, but I think it's a really cool way in universe to cap mm-hmm. the power level. Because um, if a guy's just doing magic all over and solving all his problems with magic, it, it's boring and lame. And it, like the <laughs> Superman problem, you know, we're just too powerful for to, you have to create ridiculous enemies. But mm-hmm. it's just a good little uh, check on that power. It's the uh, balance of power. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just like we talked the other day about you don't want, you don't need to hear about your, them sleeping or going to the bathroom. Um, but it, it matters that it's interesting more than it's realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly an interesting way and realistic way to, to approach magic. Um, so after he figures out that it's basically impossible, um, he heads to the police station to share what he's got with Murphy. And, uh, here's one of the creepier scenes in the novel. Um, I love it. A, a pair of beat cops are dragging in a DUI suspect. Uh, they said, um, they caught him with four grams of three eye and probably more than that you know, in him, uh, that stuff hooks harder than crack. Um, he's completely passive. The cops are literally dragging him down the hallway as they go past Harry the first time. And then at some point he wakes up and is screaming and sprinting down the hallway. And the cops are trying to chase after him saying, stop that man, stop that man. Again, just cliche. Um, <laughs> Dresden tries to tackle him half fails and then eventually succeeds. I love like, like that little piece of, uh, you know, it's like, like a paragraph, but him missing the tackle for the first try is just yeah. great. It's such a Dresden thing. That, like, nothing can go right on the first try. Um, he, uh, he tackles him, eventually gets him to the ground, and the cops come back. And uh, as he, he, his eyes get really big, like, like uh, coins, and they roll back in his head, and he says, Wizard, I see you. I see you, wizard. I see the things that follow. Those who walk before. And he who walks behind, they come. They come for you. Which, uh, can't be good. Creepy as fuck. Oh, I love it. But you can kind of see it. Like, you can see it in your head. This guy where he just stops. His eyes roll back in his head and he just... I I can kind of like a monotone voice. I think it's a a great scene. Great scene. Love it. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, awesome. And, uh, it, uh... We, Harry mentions that now that he actually is marked by a hunter spirit called He Who Walks Behind. And this random dude should have no idea that He Who Walks Behind exists, much less that he and Harry had a tussle. Um, and uh, that was when things were going bad in his adolescence. Um, uh, it's a spiritual scar, he calls him. The junkie was not a wizard. He didn't sense any magical power, so there should be no way for him to access the site. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Three Eye is real, and Three Eye does allow mere mortals to use the site, which is the wizard's kind of third eye, where they see the true nature of things, good and bad, which can be spectacularly beautiful or absolutely atrocious and horrifying. And it is everything you see with when your sight is open is indelible. It does not fade from your memory. It is always as powerful as the first time you see it. 
just like those soul gazes. So it is definitely not something you want to overuse. Mm -hmm. It's for a time. He said something about that. You don't use it except in times of great need or they will, or a wizard will go mad within a few weeks, which that's pretty intense. Yeah. That's some like schizophrenia shit. I mean, legitimately you're, you're seeing things, experiencing things different than everyone else. Exactly. And it's like, I mean, just trying to imagine, like, the auditory and the visual hallucinations and shit like that. Like, that's crazy. But yeah. it's, you know, that's kind of, it. that's why it makes this, this three-eye so bad. I mean, I mean it, 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 it affects you on a spiritual level sort of deal. Yeah, and it's, again, it's because it's indelible. It's something that you can't, it's not like, you know, you, you do some heroin, which is probably mm-hmm. bad. I've never done it. But, you know, there's ways to get you out of that. Um mm-hmm. This, you know, assuming you're doing three eye for any amount of time, Harry says he'd go mad in a couple of weeks. You literally mm-hmm. can't get it out of your head. It's there forever. Um, if it truly is opening your sight. So it's definitely a terrifying and really cool narratively. Um, oh, story wise. Definitely. Incredible. I don't think it would be so much in real life, but. <laughs> I, you know, like I said last time, probably try. Um, he goes into Murphy's office after this exchange. Um, she turns off the she makes him wait outside while she t- turns off the computer and all her electronics. Um, and we learn a little bit about why Murphy's so stressed out all the time. Like her office is this like janky, like made of plywood. Her sign is a piece of paper with a marker that says Lieutenant Karen Murphy, um, which is just bullshit. She's running. She is literally in charge of, of this division of uh, special special investigations of Chicago PD and uh, very clearly, they're the black sheep. You know, they can't even afford coffee. Harry has to pay fifty cents for the coffee he's drinking, which is um, hilarious. Yeah, yeah, just a little moment that just tells you it tells you a lot. That's the mm-hmm. show don't tell. Um, Harry tells her what he found out. It's impossible. It mm-hmm. you can't do it. And she's well, somebody did it. Um, so he said, I could maybe do it to one person without killing myself. Maybe. Um, she's like, are you naming yourself as a suspect? He's like, only one. I can only do one. Um, she, uh, so he suggests that maybe it's multiple wizards working together. Um, and she thinks maybe it's like an army or a big group. And he says, no, only 13 maximum is 13. But again, with magic, it's, it has to come from within. You have to believe it. So you need everyone to be on the exact same level. And he says that almost never happens except in cults and political organizations. Hmm. Um, and uh, she, so she thinks, well, if it's a cult's involved, maybe someone is going after Bianca. And Harry's like, no, I don't, I don't think it's Bianca. And uh, she gets it out of him. He's got to spill the beans at the visit to the Velvet Room. Um, predictably pisses her off. Um, she's pissed off at Harry a lot. Yeah. A running, running thing here. Um, I think it's dumb for her to be mad at a wizard for going to talk to vampire, but what do I know? She says that this is who I am. I'm a cop. I got to keep people safe. Well, Uh, she also told him not to. So that's true. Yeah. And he did tell her he agreed sort of, um, to us, he, it was very clear that he was going no matter what, but he did suggest to her that he wasn't going to do it. Um, and yeah, he definitely, you break in your trust. It, it certainly puts a strain on the relationship for sure. And, um, you know, she asked him for the names of all the people with magical talent in town uh, who could p- potentially do this. 
And uh, he says, I'm not going to give you that. That's ridiculous. And uh, but she says, wrong, Harry. You are going to do it. I can ask you to do it. And if you don't, I can haul you in for obstruction so quick. It'll make your head spin. Um, getting too old for this shit. But she also says that she's ass deep in alligators, which I kind of love. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I think it's kind of like, you know, you're like knee deep in shit. Yeah. Same concept. This kind of, but I love that. Ask deep in alligators. I love the alliteration. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, they're talking about Harry's, the bump on his head. Um, he's like, no, I just got a bump on my head. I'm fine. He doesn't have a concussion. That's when, uh, yeah. In the nineties and early aughts, when you played sports, you didn't, go to the trainer with a concussion when you got hit in the head. You just, you just got your bell rung. Go sip, sip some water for a little bit. You get back in there. Um, <laughs> you're very, very dumb back then. But uh, apparently the brain is a little bit important, they say. Weird. So now we care about head injuries. Harry just got his bell rung. He's going to be back at it in no time. And uh, uh, he uh, collapses. He says, no, nah, I'm fine. I'm, I can get up. And as he sits up, he pukes and passes out on her floor. Very, very uh, eloquent and elegant of him. Uh, okay, and one of the things that, that Murphy says is like, you know, you, you're hurt and don't give me any shit about falling down the stairs. Like, you know, a, a typical lie. And, you know, Harry wakes up and she's standing over him because uh, he passed out in her office. And in true Harry... Male gazy, noir fashion, he says, Do you have a little white dress? I've had this deep seated nurse fantasy about you, Murphy. And she's like, A pervert like you would, who hit your head? And he says, No one fell down my apartment stairs. She tells him it's bullshit, but she says, But he says, Her hands were no less gentle with the cool cloth. You've been running around on this case. Uh, you've been running around on this case. That's where you got the bump on the head, isn't, isn't it? He starts to protest. She's like, you're, you're fucking stupid. If you didn't already have a concussion, I would tie your heels to my car and drive you through traffic. Um, but, you know, they go back and forth. And he, uh, she's, she's like, how, how the hell did you get here? You know, and he's like, oh, I'll be fine. I just got to go home and sleep. She says, no, fuck that. I'm taking you home. So he, she scoops him up. As he's relying on her to walk because he's a red hot mess. And they get back to his apartment. Um, and this is, I kind of like this. There's this line, he says, there's a reason I'll go out on, on a limb to help Murphy. She's good people. One of the best. Where she, he, she does have a good side. They fight, they argue, but she's got a good side, at least in, at least in his mind. So they get back to like, the apartment. Hmm? Even, the, even like the, you know, the like, you got a white dress, like, like, it is banter, you know? Like, yeah. she's a cop. It's a very, you know... It's very much along the, um, don't treat... It, you know, I don't want to treat a woman like a man with breasts. That's sort well, of where the energy on that one went Yeah, me. but also, like, you know, like, I... You know, you're in a... Again, it's very male-dominated field, you know, police work. And oh, yeah. You're gonna have kind of the, the quote-unquote locker room talk, you know? Like, guys are shooting the shit and, like, getting on people. So, like, I, I, I don't feel like... It's not appropriate by any means, but yeah. it's also not as atrocious as some of the other stuff. Oh, no, not at all. Um, earlier in the novel. Yeah. Definitely. And it, and it is, but it, it is very much the Harry Noir male gaze kind of bullshit. But 
Uh, anyway, so we get back to, we get to Harry's place. She, you know, he helps her, she helps him down the stairs and unlocks the door. And then Mr. comes out and hurls himself against her legs in greeting. And she doesn't flinch. And so, you know, of course, it's either because she's so short or because she, uh, it's the Aikido. Because she's got those strong legs. Those fit legs under her pantsuit. Yeah. It's probably the low, the low center of gravity. It's just physics. Exactly. This, this is now and a phys- physics podcast. Right. Uh, so they get to get inside and it's dark. And uh, she tried the light switch, but the bulbs had burned out last week and I hadn't had the cash to replace them. He's broke as fuck. Light bulbs. Yeah. And he's sitting on the couch and the phone rings. And it's Linda Randall. Sorry, the hiccups. Um, and he asks, are you naked? Just, I mean, maybe it's because of the concussion, but dear God. And she's like, I'm in the car right now, honey. Maybe later. And she makes a date with him for that night because she wants to talk to him about some stuff. And, uh, and, uh, and she said, I get off at seven. All right. Do you want to meet me? Say at eight. And, uh, he says to meet her at the 7-Eleven down the street from his house. And she says, tell you what, give me an extra hour or so to go home, get a nice hot bath to make myself all pretty. And then I'll be there in your arms. Sound good to you? Well, okay. And she laughed and hung up without saying goodbye. And Murphy says, tell me you didn't just make a date. He's like, you're jealous. And Mur- Murphy says, please, I need more of a man than you to keep me happy. You'd break like a dry stick, Dresden. And she scoots him into bed. So, so, and that part right there is like her giving as good as she gets, you know? So yeah, like, 100%. It definitely, it definitely puts that yeah. exchange into perspective a little bit. Which oh, definitely. For sure. And that's the thing where it's, it's she's just like, eh, yeah, I need more of a man than you, bro. Um, and he's kind of a little out of it. And he is trying to remember. He had something to do on Saturday. Can't fucking remember. And he's thinking about Third Eye and Third Sight and all the crazy stuff. And he's trying to remember. And he didn't take long to click. Monica. So he he calls Monica. And a kid answers the voice. Sorry, a kid answers the phone. And he asks to speak to Monica, and he's remembering, okay, we got to keep this on the DL. He says, oh, it's her cousin Harry from Vermont. So uh, he talks to Monica, but Monica is trying very hard to get him off the phone. She's just going to let him keep the money and just... Yeah, she's basically, she's like... uh, no, no, it's not that. I just want to cancel my order, discontinue the service. Don't worry about me. And he's like, you don't want me looking for your any husband anymore? But ma'am, it's like, don't worry about that. Thank you so much for all your help. Good day. Goodbye. She hangs up. It's just a weird one. And Murphy's like, okay, come on, Harry. Puts him into bed. And she's, you know, takes his temperature, feels his scalp and pen light in the eyes and got him water and Tylenol. And... It was just kind of this, she actually cares. It seems like she actually cares about him. And, you know, she's getting ready to leave. And the phone rings again. And she answers it. Harry Dress's residence. Hello? There's no one there. Wrong number. Get some rest, Harry. And so he then passes out. The best part about that is that it's totally a Star 69 moment. And uh, 
Gonna tell the kids what that means. Goodness. Star 69 came out in, probably when I was in high school, so mid, early, mid-90s. Basically, when everybody had landlines, before, really before caller ID, if you called somebody and after the call, they star six, hit star 69 on the phone, it would call you back. Um, and I don't know if it still exists, but it was spectacular. I mean, it was a really great tool. Especially if you don't have forgot somebody's phone number because you don't have caller ID. This is you're literally going into this blind, and you can get somebody back that way. You know, if someone prank calls, you can get them back. That sort of stuff. So you know the logo on your phone to call people. How it's that weird, funny looking. <laughs> that that was the thing we used. It really was. It was a handset and everything. And when you hung up, you took the handset and put it hung it up on the uh, the the base. <laughs> But he, you know, he falls asleep and uh, he's still pondering what the hell Monica Sellis was doing, but he passes out. And that's the end of that chapter. These uh, are about to get interesting. Um, he wakes up to a storm and Mr., who is a chicken for uh, Thunder, is hiding in the uh, as far sitting not hiding. He's sitting on on top of a shelf as far away from the door as possible, the opposite side of his one and a half bedroom apartment. Uh, he gets up to eat. Um, he says he's gonna make some burgers for him and Mister. Um, and then he makes the connection that the sorcerer must be might be tapping into the storm. Mm-hmm. At, you're trying to figure out was there a storm mm-hmm. the night Tommy Tom died? And they actually mention in chapter two. Um, let's see if I have the quote here. That, uh, oh, I might have deleted it. But as they're walking into the hotel, he talks about the puddles from last night's storm. Um, mm-hmm. Just, a, a, you know, again, it's a throwaway line. Oh, there it is. We, when they're racing to the door with the, uh, after his chivalry, women aren't just smaller men with breasts. Mm-hmm. We, we raced each other with increasing speed through puddles from last night's rain. Um, just a, you know, seems like a throwaway, but just interesting that it circles back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, that's it would be crazy to do that because you're using a storm, but apparently it's possible. You get the power you need potentially. Um, he goes to the door. He's expecting Linda, and uh, it's a really gross line. You remember a chapter ago, he didn't know how to hold a woman's hand. That's what, how well he understands the fairer sex here. And he mentioned something about Linda. Maybe she doesn't worry about gross, smelly dudes because she was a sex worker. Um, mm. It's not great. Um, no. Again, I, I mean, am I fishing there? It, it, it's. It seems like. Why would you think that about her? I don't know. I, it I, is an odd one. I didn't like it. Um. Uh, it turns out it's Susan. We're gonna have a Zach Morris two dates at the same time hijinks. <laughs> that is so accurate. Another dated reference to Saved by the Bell. (laughs) Tables on opposite ends of... I'm just kidding. People who read this are actually probably older than children. It's just funny to think about being old. Um, (laughs) But uh, she she already starts interrogating about the case, and he says, I gotta go take a shower. While he's in there, he hears someone at the door, and he thinks it's Linda, which is gonna be the cattiest situation ever. Um, Turns out it's a uh, a toad demon. I love that... uh, (laughs) He, as the... uh, He's trying to get in through the door. We learn a little bit about, uh, he calls it homestead law, which is uh, basically the threshold around a home has power and it keeps out unwanted power. 
Um, you know, we see that in other lore with vampires. Um, he mentions it at some point that they trying to get through the, uh, trying to keep themselves together is hard enough without going through a threshold. Mm -hmm. um, wizards have to leave some power on the outside if they go through a threshold uninvited. And, you know, this demon is obviously not invited, but he's powerful enough to break through. And it just takes him some time to gather that power. So he's basically stuck at a wall that he's fighting to break through. Um, and so they have a couple seconds to try to figure this out. Um, I just love where... Uh, it's a great visual. Oh, yeah. Disgusting demon thing. I, I've never been able to picture the face, but uh, uh, Susan asks, what is it? And he says, a bad guy. Which I love. <laughs> um, he's got claws and it spits acid. It's no bueno. Um, he sends Susan down to the lab and tells her to drink, drink the sports bottle on my, on my desk. Very, very specific, Carrie. Good job. But it doesn't work. She's still there. She's supposed to be the escape potion. Uh, she comes back upstairs and tries to shoot the demon as he's saying, no! A uh, couple of bullets bounce off of him. A couple of bullets whiz around the room and one misses him completely. Um, obviously, the gun's not going to work, so they go back downstairs. And he has a magic circle kind of pre-prepared -pre for situations like this in the floor. Um, and they hop in there. And like we saw with two keeping a, a, a spirit being in magical creature now we're trying to keep a magical creature out the demon is out there and they're stuck in this circle um, and it's pretty tight and if they can stay in there till sunrise he tells us the connection from the demon to the summoner will be will be cut so running water or sunrise will break it she's like there's no sun down here that's not how it works sunrise is like a they're in there bob tells harry that susan drank the love potion so she's trying to fuck him which would be very tough standing up in a circle um legs just get so tired um harry thinks about uh that's it um yeah and that's kind of the the big part of this which is like very frustrating um and not frustrating that word but i talked about this we're gonna bring i'm gonna bring it up later and yikes it's probably gonna say the same thing again but they never talk about the love potion as a bad thing. It's just like this joke that she took it on accident. She's trying to fuck him and they kiss. And even the kiss is like, he's obviously not like, you know, trying to bone or anything like that. But he like, he's into the he's kisses. He's trying to bone him though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But it's just, it's icky that they don't talk about it yeah. as problematic. I mean, it is problematic. Yes. Um, and the fact that it, it's, you know, I, I mentioned this with Bob and why, I, you know, obviously you, you had a bit of a different opinion and yours is certainly probably more correct. But for me, I, I feel like Bob is the, he's, we're in on the joke with Bob and it's like, he says stuff and it's like, fuck you, Bob, you're being an idiot. Shut up. Um, and that can be, you can, you can have crass humor if everyone understands this is not okay. You know what I mean? Like that's, you can, you can joke about stuff. It is possible mm -hmm. in the right setting with the right care. Um, but this isn't in on the joke. They're just pretending love potions are just fine. And obviously he doesn't take advantage of her, but it's the fact that they don't really like, she's completely losing her agency. is just fucked up. Um, but either way, um, the, 
Oh, am I doing your chapter? No, we're still we're still at the end where you know okay. we're going to die, aren't we, Harry? Have you ever thought about thought you'd want to die making love? Yeah, exactly. Um, Gag. Again, actually, within all the cheesy lines. Well, the other thing is you forgot to mention is he's naked right now. Oh yeah, he he did hop out of the shower and he's completely naked. Yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, I for, we forgot about that part. Um. He's like, your, your, your mouth says no, but this says yes. He says, that thing always says something stupid. Uh, <laughs> skunk. Uh, which is pretty fair, especially for a 25-year-old. Um, and uh, they, Bob he says, oh, yeah, I see the other potion. I can get it to you. And he's like, okay, I'll give you permission to get him out of the skull for five minutes. He's like, no, boss. He's like, oh, fuck you, Bob. Uh, he's like, yeah, no, give me 24 hours. God damn it, Bob. You have 24 hours. Give me the potion. And um, he throws him the potion. And a subtle part of this that I really love is because it's something cor- corporeal, something of our world. Now but because it's... Now, now you're doing my, my part. Oh, am I? It's okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. No, keep going. Keep going. What were I, I don't know where the break is. I just, because Bob is throwing it, yeah, it's be- it, doesn't, yeah, I... it doesn't break the circle. I just love yeah. that. Um, but sorry. I, That's all right. I like was taking notes all the way through. Sorry, carry on. You're totally okay. Cut well, and the, be- the best part about that too is it's another good ending of a of a of a chapter. It's who says I don't know how to show a lady a good time. Oh yeah, that <laughs> so spectacular. And then you know, and this is where take me, Harry. I need you. But again, we've got the power of the circle, which I love. And, and but the he does toss him the, the 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 potion, and it's she's he's like, okay, you got to drink this with me. You got to drink this with me. I think I can focus it on, you know, do the focus for both of us. And she's, I'm not thirsty. Her eyes smoldered. I'm hungry. He's he's like, okay, once we drink this, I'll be ready and we can go to bed. And she's like, oh, okay, Harry, bottoms up. We're doing the very crunchy kind of ick. Uh, But, you know, he drinks half of the potion. She drinks some of it. And they fly apart into a cloud of a million billion tiny pieces. And they, the escape escape potion works. And they, all of those million billion pieces slam back together at an unthinkable speed. And apparently it's painful and and nauseating. And it's a really cool description. It is a really cool, because every, he says that, uh, where is it? Um, so into a million billion tiny pieces of Harry, each one with its own perspective and view. The room wasn't just a square cluttered basement to me, but a pattern of energy is grouped into specific shapes and uses. Even the demon was only a cloud of particles, slow and dense. I float around, float around that cloud up through the opening in the ceiling and outside of the apartment and into the raging non-pattern of the storm. I love that too, that the storm doesn't have a pattern because it's so powerful that there's no pattern to it. But it's very much like how in my head they do teleportation on like Star Trek, where they beat me up, Scotty, where they're just into molecules. Oh, same yeah. idea as the 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 escape potion, which is fantastic. Or the uh, the teleporter transporter thing in uh, Willy Wonka. In what? Willy Wonka. Oh yes, up? exactly. Same idea. The television or something. Yes. Um, okay, so he they they get outside, and Susan is like, "Oh God, I feel terrible." She's sick and she doesn't know if she can walk. And he's like, oh shit, the mixed potions. Uh, he's like, but we got to go now. Come on, Susan, up and at him. And he tries to help her do her feet. And he's like, oh, she's like, where are we going? Do you have your car keys? They're in your coat pocket. 
which is inside. He's like, okay, well, we're going to go. We're going to walk then. And it, they're walking towards the running water. And it's, uh, the rain that, won't. A street that floods. But honestly, yeah. if, if you drink some Jolt Cola and tequila, that'd probably be enough to make you sick without any of the potion effect. I agree completely. That's a horrible combination. And it's flat Jolt Cola. He mentions that the soda is flat. Oh, yeah, because he had to, it was on the Bunsen burner or whatever. Yeah. Ugh. Gross. Um, and Jolt Cola was bad enough. So this is where we kind of learn a little bit about the running water. It'll kill him if he tries to go after us in the running water. Not the rain, but the running water. Um, Which is a pretty typical problem for magic in a lot of different lores. Well, water is very powerful in a lot of lore. So, um, running running water in particular. Yes, and that's the thing where it's kind of because it's. I mean, just the nature, the natural power of running water. Where you know, you know, we have we had a ton of flooding here and it was just like, you don't go into running water because it will sweep you away. Uh, and that's one of the things with, with, I love that it also has a supernatural element to it where it's got that power. It's got that uh, dangerous element there. Um, and so she starts to puke. She is sick as hell and cannot go anywhere. Bad mixing potions. Um, and so the, the storm is raging around them and, and, you know, lightning hits a, hits a tree and it's all very dramatic. And, um, then he hears someone say, I didn't think you'd last this long. And he almost jumps out of his skin, he says, and he sees in a pooling shadows, an illusion in the darkness between lights gone when lightning flashed and back again when it had passed. And he says, who's there? And this person says, do you expect me to give you my name? And he says, suffice it to say that I'm the one who has killed you. And Harry says, you're an underachiever. The job's not done. <laughs> and uh, soon, you can't last much longer, but the demon will finish you before another 10 minutes have passed. And so now we've learned that this shadowy shape has called that demon. And he, are you crazy? Do you, don't you know what could happen if that thing got loose? And it won't. It is mine to control. And Harry extends his senses, which basically his, his power is going out and kind of feeling around this person. He, that's when he realizes it's not a real person. It's an illusion. It's a phantasm or a hologram. And the, the, the person feels it. He knows something's going on. He's like, what are you doing? Checking your credentials. And uh, he sent some of his remaining will toward it, the sorceress equivalent of a slap in the face. The image cried out in surprise and reeled back. How did you do that? It snarled. I went to school. <laughs> I had that one written down too. So good. I love that. But it's, you awesome. know, it's, he's been trained in these specific ways and he tried to hear uh, the, the, the hologram raised his voice, calling out a rolling syllables. He, and Harry couldn't hear what it was because the thunder peeled and he thinks he's pretty sure that it's the demon's name and you know, the image, you know, now you will pay. And he's like, why are you doing this? Cause you're in my way. And he says, let her go. She's seen too much. She's in the way now, too. Uh, my demon will kill you both. And, you know, he, the, the frog is coming towards them. And we learn that, or I guess Harry d- d- realizes that it's the power of the storm. And this is a great little blurb i'm just gonna read it another flash of lightning showed the demon falling to all floors and scrambling toward me like an overweight lizard scuttling across hot sand to shade 
in an exaggerated wagging motion that looked ridiculous, so it brought it closer and closer at deceptive speed. Deposit another quarter to continue your call, asshole. I thrust my, sh- my staff towards the shadowy image, this time focusing my will into a full-fledged attack. And then he says some fake Latin. And light abruptly flo- floods over him, devouring the edges and mo- moving inward. And then this hologram or whatever is, my demon will roll in your bones. And then the counterspell began to tear the image apart. So he's using a lot of power at this point. So they're trying to, you know, he tries to get Susan up and like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And she's like, she can't do it. And he's like, if I carry her, I'm not going to make it. Would it be better for one of us uh, that at least for one of us to live at that point, he decides that he can't do that. And she's helpless. And then that's the lightning flashed overhead, heat blinding bright. Overhead, sorry, blinding bright. Thunder came hard on its heels, deep deep enough to shake the street beneath my feet. Thunder, lightning, the storm. He looks up at the clouds, and this is when he realizes there is enough mystical energy as old as time, enough power to shatter stones, superheat air, boil water to steam, burn anything it touched to ashes. He was said he, he at this point he's desperate enough to try whatever the fuck he can. So he sends his power up and he's trying to protect create a shield to protect them. But now he's going to do some shit. Okay. But it's just just a chapter ago he was talking about how this is that's ridiculous. Someone would try to use a storm? Yep. And then at my will a spark leapt up from the tip of my staff towards the clouds above me. It r- touched the rolling, restless belly of the storm. Hell roared down in response. Lightning, white-hot fury with a torrent of rain and wind, all fell upon me, centered around the staff. I felt the power hit the end of the soaking wet wood with a jolt like a sledgehammer. It coursed down the staff into my hand, making my muscles convulse, bow- bowing my ba- naked body with the strain. It took everything I had to hold the image of what I wanted in my mind, to keep my hand pointed at the demon as it came for me, to keep the energy surging through me, to wreak its havoc on flesh less tender than mine. I mean, damn. So That's good. pretty fucking cool. So good. It's just such great, like, just so strong and powerful. And then the power, the energy, just the, the demon struggled scream, toad's hand flailings, toad legs kicking, and it exploded in a wash of blue flame. And they won. And at that point, uh, Morgan appears. And... Well, he act, before Morgan appears, he asks Susan, what are you doing next Saturday? And Morgan appears and, and summoning, your, summoning demons in addition to the atrocities you've already committed. I knew I smelled black magic on the winds tonight. You are a blight, Dresden. And this is like, dude, I didn't, huh? I said, shut up, Morgan. Right? He says, I didn't fucking do that. I will, uh, but I did send it back to where it, does, where it belongs. And he's like, I saw you defend yourself against it, but I didn't see anyone else summon it. You probably called it yourself and lost control of it. It couldn't have taken, taken me anyway, Dresden. It wouldn't have done you any good. He's like, what the fuck, man? Like, I'm not, I didn't send this demon to get you. He's like, I sure as hell wouldn't risk calling up a demon just to get you, Morgan. And then he, that's when he learns the council's coming to Chicago. And 
He says, Dawn, on Monday, you will be brought before them. I don't usually enjoy my position as executioner, Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, but in your case, I'm proud to fulfill the role. I shuddered. This is the name thing again. I shuddered when he pronounced my full name. He did it almost exactly right, maybe by accident, and maybe not too. There were those on the White Council who knew knew my name, knew how to say it. To run from the to run from the council convened to avoid them would be admit guilt and admit guilt and invite disaster. So basically, what this means is that Monday morning he's fucked. Yup. He needs to get shit done, and it's bad. Uh, and then a cop shows up, and uh, it's they. There's a couple. It's a naked dude on the street. You know, <laughs> like you do. Yeah, and. Uh, Susan says, this is the worst night of my life. And Harry grunted, that's what you get for trying to go out with a wizard. And she said, but it's going to make a fantastic story. Fantastic. Yes. She almost smiled. <laughs> it's great. Oh, but there was a look of vindictive sort of satisfaction to her tone. Or there's a sort of vindictive satisfaction to her tone. Oh, dear God. But all right. That's that chapter. So the uh, chapter 15 opens with, an, I mean, again, just that. He does such a good job. I mean, all of the writing is great, but the opening lines and closing lines of chapters are just like absolute brilliance. Um, as it turned out, Linda Randall had a darn good reason for skipping out on our appointment Saturday night. Linda Randall was dead. Um, just, I don't know, just a great way to set the scene here. Um, it's going to be, it's not going to be fluid. It's not going to be fun. It's setting us up for disaster, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he goes to see Murphy. Um, he talks about how she snorts really well for someone with such a cute nose. Um, Goodness gracious. What does that even mean? I um, don't know. But uh, he's, you know, looks over the apartment. He kind of compares herself, himself to her kind of loners um, with a, you know, broken past or whatever. Um, and then Murphy uh, found his, you know, uh, she, Linda Randall died the same way. Her heart was across the room from her. Um, Amazing. Her chest is ripped, is, you know, torn open and just awful. Um, I, uh, I was, so I, the first couple of times I read, I didn't put all that together because I was reading, li- reading it a little bit more critically today about how the heart was across the room. Mm-hmm. I listened to our podcast, just to, the first one, just to kind of see, how it went, you know, and uh, make sure it sounded okay. And I didn't even realize while we were doing it live that you did a description of like decomposing bodies because I just blocked <laughs> it out. Like I had no idea that you were talking about green shit and bubbles. Like I, I, I was like, that was all new to me when I listened to the podcast. Um, I'm telling you, I just block it out. Um, but I read this way more critically this time. Um, but uh, Murphy shows him his uh, business card, which you know, he's doing the same case as you. Um, and he, she asks him about, she, he said she worked for the Becketts. He's like, well, I don't know who the Becketts are. I never heard of them. She's like, the Becketts, they lost their daughter in a shootout, um, a crossfire of Marcone and the previous gang that was running the show. And they tried to sue him for wrongful death. It got tossed out. Obviously he's got good lawyers. Um, and nothing yeah. became of it. So that it explains her dead eyes and how obviously it's strained marriage. They're not wearing wedding rings or anything. It's definitely, you know, they lost a kid and yeah. in a su- super tragic and 
um, horrible way, and it certainly has shaped their issues to some mm-hmm. extent. Um, but he says he doesn't know him, which I, I just don't understand. I don't understand this. So, in my opinion, and you could, you know, I'm actually want to hear what you think because I'm certainly mm-hmm. not a literary expert. This is false conflict. So the idea yes. of false conflict is. It's basically the, you know, every 90s uh, sitcom where it looks like somebody's boning someone they shouldn't be, but really they're like moving a couch. Like, it's not what it looks like. And their fiance storms out. Um, or the entire Oliver plot from the first season of the OC. Um, just if people would communicate, yes, there is no conflict. Um, yes. So that's, that's called false conflict. And it's just a bad way of writing a story. Um, and that's what this is. Like it, he gives mm-hmm. some, he gives some reasons why, and that's why I wanted your thoughts. Like he does have reasons. He can't really talk about the white council. You know, they don't, they don't want him doing that. He's not really sure what Morgan's capable of. Yeah. But the but part this, where he outright lies to her. Yeah. And the part where he's like, well, then she's got to ask questions like a cop. Like, yeah. And you answer the questions and say, I was asking her questions because yeah. Bianca gave me her phone number. Like, it, it's just, well, and he had already, he already admitted he went to talk to Bianca. Exactly. So I don't understand. Like, if he had admitted that he'd talked to Bianca, I understand that this would be a little bit harder to kind of make happen. But he'd already told her, look, I talked to Bianca. And so I, that was kind of like, not really, it just didn't make sense. And you're right. False conflict is so accurate. It's one of those tropes in every single fucking rom-com. Yeah, exactly. it's like, If people just talked, it'd be fine. Well, then there's no movie. That's true. But it's so poor, annoying. Poor Miss Heigl. She's got nothing to do anymore. Seriously, that's um, true. <laughs> so I wonder if maybe it was like a, an earlier draft where he didn't go to Bianca's and then he decided mm-hmm. to put the Bianca foreshadowing or like a uh, foreshadowing. It's his foreshadowing. She's in later novels. Um, yeah. But uh, maybe he, he plugged that in and didn't fix it. Or maybe he just made, you know, again, we're all, this is a, you, you're listening to a podcast that is not perfect. I understand that. He's not, it's not supposed yeah. to be perfect. Um, but that's what we're doing here is breaking it down. Um, but, uh, he lies to her. You know, she says, all right, we'll come down for questioning tomorrow. She has Carmichael witness it. He's a person of interest. He's not a suspect, but like, she knows he didn't do it. It's just, I just, but again, he lied to her. He broke, he, when you breach trust, mm-hmm. you know, it's tough. It's tough to go back. And she's certainly a proud person and she's has to fight and claw for everything she's accomplished in life. So I, I sort of get her side of it. It's just Harry. I don't get it. But, um, yeah. he says, I, I can't come in tonight. I have to wash my hair. Um, she said tomorrow then eight o'clock or I'll get a warrant out for you. Um, which if he's uh, procedurally yeah. like in, if he, it, for a warrant, you have to have probable cause. She doesn't have probable cause. Maybe she knows a judge. Uh, that's true. Or maybe she can, you know, use her, her fit legs, her right. pantsuit to get a judge yeah. on her side. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it's again, it's just a trope. It's, we have to, it's, we're moving the pieces around the board, right? We have to separate Murph and Dresden for act three. So mm-hmm. we just make something up. It, it's yeah. not great. It's not great. Um, it's that doesn't like kill the story or anything like that. I mean, Linda dying is the most important part of this and him, yeah. and, Mur- him and Murphy were already kind of in a fight. So it's fine. It's just, it's clunk. It's clunky. It's clumsy. It's not great. You know, again, um, we're all learning a little, get a little bit better each day. Right. That's what I tell you. Yeah. Um, so Murph gets pissed and now he's like sort of a suspect. I think she's just fussy because he's doing his own thing and not, I, I, I don't not know. listening to her. Yeah. I mean, not, again, the lie, you lied to her. You, he did cause a little bit of the problem. Yeah. Um, the chapter ends with a self-loathing passage about how he can't protect anyone. He has to lie. 
it's just clunky is, is all i you know i i it's there's different ways to write right and again i'm not a writer at all but uh like george r, r. martin is famous for he calls it gardening where he just has the characters and just like what are they doing in this paragraph what are they doing in this paragraph what are they doing in this paragraph and that's why it's such a shit show it takes him a decade to get a book out because he has he to lets, keep the, he lets the characters drive the story exactly whereas you know butcher asks a question answers the question in each scene he has he has a method that's really funny actually and i love him describing it um we'll get into that at some point but uh you know you have to get to the end end result and you got to get the pieces on the board where you need them mm -hmm. you know and, and i i get it and you know it's, it's it's just not elegant is all but um he's self-loathing you know the self-loathing detective who doesn't have any leads and you know can't protect anybody um and now uh, he's got to figure this out. He's going to die in about a day and a half if he doesn't figure it out. Um, he might die sooner than that if the mob or the shadow man get him. And now his only friend is mad at him. So, fuck. All right. So Harry uh, leaves the Linda Randall's apartment and kind of walks to kind of collect his thoughts. He, he, he called a cab from the gas station um, payphone. And he's standing there kind of leaning against the wall, trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And he has lost Murphy's trust. And this, he says, noble intentions had meant, uh, noble's intention, noble intentions meant nothing. The results of my actions had been telling a bald faced lie to one of the only people I could come close to calling a friend. I wasn't, and I wasn't even sure that, so I wasn't sure that even if I found the person or persons responsible, even if I worked out how to bring them down, even if I did Murphy's job for her, what had happened between us could ever be smoothed over. And so he's, you know, in this doom and gloom place trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And he's attacked again. And it's total sucker punch, fist to the belly. And he, he had time to think, not again. And it, the dude's nailing him he's he's punching him he's out of breath struggling to speak and he's he's i said i sort of sagged when he stopped hitting me and he threw me to the ground we were at a well-lit gas station just before midnight on a saturday night and anything he did was in full view of any cars going by surely god didn't plan on surely god he didn't plan on killing me though at the moment i was too tired and achy to care he, I lay there for a moment, dazed. I could smell my attacker's sweat and cologne. I could tell it all, tell it was the same person who had jumped me the night before. He grabbed my hair, jerked my head up, and with an audible snip of steel scissors, cut off a big lock of my hair, then let me go. Right, we bro. We talked about this. This is the voodoo doll part. This is not good. Bad, bad, bad. And this is when he, he attacks him back. He wants his, he wants his damn hair back. And he left at his leg, got him on the ground, uh, got him around the knee and yanked hard and heard a little pop at the knee. And the man screamed, son of a bitch, and fell heavily to the earth. The hat fell off and he recognized him as one of Johnny Marcone's men who'd followed him from the hotel. The one who had been limping after jogging only several blocks. Apparently, Gimpy had a trick knee and I just made it jump through its hoop. <laughs> uh, which is great. He's trying to get the hair back. He's, you know, and then these two bystanders come by thinking that he is beating up him and and they break him up and Gimpy gets, gets free. And, and he says, he says, he, my wallet, he's got my wallet. The two men let him go and are look super confused because he's a red hot mess. Gimpy's in a suit and you know, they all, everybody goes away. And then he realizes Johnny Marconi now has a lock of my hair. And what is that? 
what does that mean? Like he could use my hair to tear my heart from my chest, rip it right out. Like he had done with Jennifer Stanton, Tommy Tom and poor Linda Randall. Marconi had warned me to stop twice. And now he was going to take me out for all. Was it for all? Marconi has some thing going on with the wizard. Obviously. He said, um, I wasn't going to take this lying down. These assholes were serious. They tried to kill me once. They were coming after me again. Marconi on his boys. He's like, no, not Marconi. That didn't make sense unless it had been Marconi's, uh, unless it had been Marconi's gang dealing the three eye from the very beginning. If Marconi had a wizard in residence, why would he have tried to bribe me away? Why not just swipe the hair at that point and kill him or and, uh, swipe the hair when he, the thug with the bat and kill him when he couldn't pay attention? Or is this, is Gimpy playing both sides? Is he playing two sides of the street? But he knew. Someone had a lock of his hair and some wizard somewhere meant to kill him. And this is, this is, it adds to it. You know, these, these, there's so much shit going on here. And, um, this isn't good. The shadow man couldn't take a shot at me yet. He says, uh, he didn't have that kind of strength. He needed to wait for the storms for the, that came each spring to use them to kill me. I had time. I had time to work. If I could just find out where they were and give, where Gibby had taken my hair, I could go after him. And then he realizes he could, the, the hair could be, he could use the hair as a link where he could use it to kind of track him down. And he's like, I got to find out where McConey is. Bob's gone for 24 hours. Then he realized Mark, Murphy would know, but he can't ask Murphy. He's kind of fucked himself over with this one. And that's when he realizes he scratched the fuck out of Gimpy and he has blood under his fingernails. And this is, we see another kind of magic, a tracking spell. And he works this tracking spell right on the side of the street. He has a piece of chalk in his pocket, right? Does the, the, the circle, whole nine. And he, he does the tracking spell. Cabby shows up. He says, uh, did someone call for a cab? He's like, yeah, I did. Um, why do I get all the nuts? The cabbie says, where to two stops. He goes to his apartment and he says, okay, where's number two. I'll tell you when we get there. Fabulous. Just great. It's a- absolutely awesome. What's also great is the way that this tracking spell works uh-huh. is, is he's smelling. He's following the scent of he's yes. smelling the guy, which yeah. is just absurd and wonderful. But he uh, smelled, his, he said he smelled his sweat and his cologne. Oh Yeah. It's just fantastic. It's how a, the magic works. Is really... Yeah. And, but in all the senses, there's a lot of senses being used. Awesome. Uh, you know, it's very cool. Very cool. And now we're at the varsity. We end up at the varsity club and you're up. And he gets, he gets to the varsity, which is a bar owned by Marcone. Um, it's apparently a lot of college kids. It's in a strip mall. And uh, the boss of all of Chicago is hanging out there on a Friday, Saturday night. Because why not? Um, he uh, goes through his inventory, which is cool. He has a staff, a blasting rod. He's got a bracelet on each wrist and a ring. It's a cool peek at some of the stuff we'll flesh out later. Um, and he's thinking about ways to subtly get into the, you know, get, get in there and confront Marcone, whether it's like rats or bugs or something. Mm-hmm. And then um, he decides he's just going to go right in the front door. And uh, I think it's a reference. Tolkien, uh, J.R. Tolkien wrote, do not meddle in the affairs of wizards, for they are subtle, quick to anger. 
And so he gets to the door and says, fuck subtle, subtle, uh, which I love. Um, he blows, yes. the do blows down the door, but he blows it towards him, not towards the uh, patrons of the bar, which is just, you know, he doesn't want any collateral damage either. Um, but he goes in and he confronts Marcone, the leader of the criminal underworld in Chicago, in public, at his own business, in front of a bunch of dumb kids. I'd love you, Harry, but you can be so dumb sometimes. <laughs> Once he confronts Marcone, Gimpy knows the game's up. He does some, some futile pleading, but eventually he pulls his gun and then Cujo takes him out. Uh, he doesn't have his hair on him. And you know, here, he, I, like, I like that Marcone says, oh, he must have dropped it off before he got here. And Harry's like, or gave it to somebody while he's here. He's like, no, I would have noticed. Just like the confidence, the, mm -hmm. the, like the juxtaposition of these two guys is just great. Um, because he's and, supernatural, just saying. <laughs> and now he's come at Marcone publicly, so he can't use Marcone as a resource. He can't use Murphy as a resource. Uh, our hero's up against it. He's got no friends, no lead, no hope. So he just goes for a stroll. All right. So he's out of ideas and out of clues. And this, the start of this chapter is fantastic. And it's, have you ever felt despair? Absolute hopelessness? Have you ever stood in the darkness and known deep in your heart, in your spirit, that it was never, ever going to get better, that something had been lost forever and that it wasn't coming back? That's what it felt like walking out of the varsity, walking into the rain. When I'm in turmoil, when I can't think, when I'm exhausted and afraid and feeling very, very alone, I go for walks. So he went for a walk. He's distraught. He's a red hot mess right now. And... He, we get a little story about what happened with his father. Uh, and this I'm going to read because I, I feel like it's really important. I thought about my father I usually do when I get that low. He was a good, a, a good man, a generous man, a hopeless loser, a stage magician at the time when technology was producing more magic than magic. He had never had much to give his family. He was on the road most of the time playing rundown houses, trying to scratch at a living for my mother. He wasn't there when I was born. He wasn't there when she died. He showed up the day, more than a day after I'd been born. He gave me the names of three magicians and took me, took me with him on the road, entertaining children and retirees, performing in school gymnasiums and grocery stores. He was always generous, kind, more kind and more generous than we could afford, really, and he was always a little bit sad. He would show me pictures of my mother and talk about her every night. It got to where I felt I almost knew her myself. As I got older, the feeling increased. I saw my father, I think, as she must have, a dear, sweet, gentle man, a little naive, but honest and kind, someone who cared for others and who didn't value material gain over all else. I can see why she would have loved him. I never got old enough to be his assistant, as he had promised me. He died in his sleep one night, an aneurysm, the doctor said. I found him, cold, smiling. Maybe he'd been dreaming of mother when he went. And as I looked at him, I suddenly felt, for the very first time in my life, utterly entirely alone that was that something was gone that would never return that a little hole had been hollowed out inside of me that wasn't ever going to be filled again and this says i to me it says a, it kind of reflects a lot about who he is he is a kind man he doesn't he is more generous it feels like than he should be he is honest he doesn't he, it, it feels like he doesn't value material gain over all else. He well, is like, not yeah, I mean, naive, the, though. The description of his father 
is, is what he strives to be. Is, is what he, I mean, but it really does describe a lot of, a lot of his character as yes. well. And, yes. But I, I, I don't think he realizes that. No, Again, I, not he, at all. Not yeah. at all. I also love the idea of a, a stage magician son being like a really powerful wizard. It's just kind yes. of funny. It's fantastic. But it, 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 that gives a lot of story about, a lot of background about his story. And, you know, his wandering carries him back to Linda Randall's apartment. And uh, he laments about what the fuck is going on in his world. The killer was going to get a spell together to kill me the next time he had a storm to draw on. And from the way the air felt, that could be any time. If he didn't kill me, Morgan would certainly have the White Council set to execute me at dawn on Monday. The bastard was probably out lobbying votes already. If, if the matter came before the council, I wouldn't stand a chance. So he basically breaks back into Linda Randall's apartment. And he walks around and smelling perfume and blood. Again, the scents. And he eventually found himself lying on the floor on the carpeting next to Linda Randall's bed. Uh, he fell asleep. And he said, I didn't feel like moving, like going anywhere, like doing anything. Useless. It had all been useless. I was going to die in the next few days. The worst part was that I wasn't sure I cared. I was just so tired, exhausted from all the magic I'd had to use, from the walking, from the bruises and the punches and the lack of sleep. It was dark. Everything was dark. I think I must have fallen asleep. I needed it after everything that had happened. I don't remember anything else until the sun was too bright in my eyes. So he was so distraught, so broken, he fell asleep until the sun woke him up. And then he has this conversation with himself. Just. What the hell so, are you doing, Harry? Uh, what was that? It's just so weird that he ends up back there. It's just a weird place to, to walk to. I mean, I. Mm -hmm. it, I don't I mean, it, it could just be proximi month. proximity. Yeah, yeah. Must, must be. But it's just like. I go take a nap at, with a place that still smells so like blood. <laughs> so weird. But, uh, you know, the thing is, I'm wondering. This just popped into my head. Um, I'll save it for analysis. But the women, his shit with women might have to stem back to his mother, which is super Freudian, but whatever. Okay. But he wakes up. He says, um, what the hell are you doing, Harry? I demanded out loud. Lying down to die, I told myself petulantly. Like hell, my wiser part said, get off the floor and get to work. Don't want to. Tired. Go away. You're not too tired to talk to yourself, so you're not too tired to bail your ass out of the alligators either. Open your eyes, I told myself firmly. And he opens his eyes, and he sees photographs on the walls of her, and there's a lot of pictures in her apartment. And lying just in the edge of a stray little beam of light, one that was already retreating as the sun rose above the edge of the buildings, was a small red plastic cylinder. We have another fucking film canister. And at that point, he realizes these two cases are really fucking connected. An entirely new realm of possibility had opened up to me, and somewhere in it might be my opportunity, my chance to get out of this alive, to catch the killer, to salvage everything that had started going to hell. I mean, this was a very much a holy fuck moment. And he's getting ready to take on the world, grabs his staff and rods, starts towards the door. And then he hears a key turn in the deadbolt of the apartment's front door. And that's how the love chapter it. ends, which yeah, is fantastic. Uh, so Harry jumps behind the door so that, you know, the visual, the guy opens the door and Harry's behind it. So when he closes the door behind him, Harry just kind of pops out. Surprise! Um, and gets him. 
Um, and he, Harry kind of pretends to be a cop for a little bit. Um, it is the mysterious photographer, it turns out, that the pizza driver mentioned. Um, and he's obviously back looking for that film canister. Um, it's a fun little scene. Harry pretends to be a cop. He gets the guy nervous. But once the guy figures it out, he uh, snaps his teeth together real quick. Um, they uh, make a deal where the uh, photographer gets the film. Harry gets a little bit of info. Um, basically, Linda told him to go out there to take the pictures that night, um, you know, get some pictures of the orgy, and she was going to use it as leverage. He didn't say for what. Um, they do have a, a sarcastic back and forth where he says, oh, he, yeah, you take pictures of the girls. Like, nude pictures? Like, no! Um, yeah, just uh, Harry being a little naive here, uh, which is funny. <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, he, he ends up trying to take the film. Harry's like, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. I'll probably, probably burn it. Um, so as he's on his way out, he, uh, Harry burns it himself with magic, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get to blackmail people either, buddy. Um, he wonders, you know, you mentioned it. He wonders how he stumbled upon all this intrigue at a lake house on a completely different case and realized he had it. He had been sent there intentionally. So he needed to go talk to Monica. No last name. Monica sells. You're up. All right, so he goes to Monica Sell's house, and we get he knocks on the door, sticks like lays on the doorbell type of thing, and the door opens about six inches, and we get another overly descriptive Monica, a, a woman description. Uh, she stood. In, this is a, a bit different, though. Monica Sell stood inside, peering out at me with her green eyes. She was dressed in jeans, a plain flannel shirt with the sleeves rolled up, and her hair was covered by a bandana. She wore no makeup. She looked both older and more appealing that way. Eh, just kind of interesting. Um, but when he sees her, when she sees him, her face goes pale. Like, she's just like, oh, fuck. She says, I don't have anything to say to you, dude. Go away. And he's like, no, 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 no. She says, okay. He's, I'll call the police. He says, go for it. I'll tell them about you and your husband. And she, that was very much an oh, fuck moment. He sees a look of panic on her face. And I don't, and he, he doesn't know what she saw, but it wasn't friendly. He's also kind of bluffing about the, uh. He, he just knows they're involved. He doesn't yeah. know what he doesn't doing. know exactly what it is. But at this point, he's pre- he's reasonably sure that Victor is a war- warlock, but yeah. he wants to get more information. And there's this, this dramatic crime show interaction is how I described it. Um, and she pulls out a taser. And she tries to tase him. And she she does. She gets him in the belly. Um, but he kind of, they dance around and, and she's like, I, and this is a, this is a very strong, um, her will. This is her example of will. I won't let you touch them. She snarled, not you, not anyone. I'll kill you before I let you touch them wizard. And then she was coming at me again, fury, replacing the terror in her eyes, a grim determination to succeed. That made me think of Murphy for a second. For the first time, she was looking at me in the face. For the first time, she forgot to keep her eyes averted from mine. And in that second, I saw inside of her. And this is the soul gazing. Um, and he learns about her. He learns her grief, her pain. And the pieces fall in place. And, and he, he's learning these emotions that are driving her, the love that for her children and she 
wants to try to use the sun and getting it. It got to within about three inches of me, the light brown in uh, the light bright in my eyes. Then I drew in a breath and puffed it out onto the stunner along with an effort of will. There was a spark, a little puff of smoke, and then it went dead in her hands. Like every other electronic gizmo seemed to whenever I came around. Hell, I was surprised it had taken as long as it did to stop working. And even if it hadn't, it wasn't any trouble for me to hex it into uselessness. I love that. Where he just, he basically just blows on it. Um, and so there, the soul gazing is never pleasant or simple. We talked about this where it's not something that easy. It's not something that's kind. Um, and he, he, he said, I, I hadn't wanted to know that she'd been abused as a child, that she'd married a man who'd provided her more of the same as an adult, that the only hope or light she saw in her life was in her two children. There hadn't been time to see all of her reasons, all of her logic. I still didn't know why she'd drawn me into this entire business, but I knew that it was ultimately because she loved her kids. And it, she's, she's fragile. She's been, this stuns her. And, you know, this is when he, you know, she's like, what do you want? He's like, first off, I want my fucking hair back. I want to know why you came to me, why you dragged me into this mess. And I want to know who killed these fuckers. And he mentions them by name. And she says, Linda's dead. She knows fucking Linda. And he's, you know, he said, somebody's planning to take me out the same way. Next chance they get. And then he hears a storm in the distance and he, he knows I'm, I'm fucking dead. Damn, and dying. And she knows she's like, you have to get out of here, dude. You have to be gone when, and then doesn't say you've got to go before it's too late. And this is all very, it's this hopelessness and her kids show up and she's like, no, go lock yourselves away. And he's begging her. He begs her for help because he needs to know what the hell's going on. And she says, all right, I'll tell you what I know, wizard, but there's nothing I can do to help you. She paused at the doorway and looked back at, at me. Her words fell with a weight of conviction, simple truth. There's nothing anyone can do now. Oof. And on that Oof. note. huge like story dump chapter but all of these chapters this center chunk of the book it's a lot of like just oof beating oh, yeah. down so it is it's, huge. It's, it's definitely a lot leaves you a lot lower you know he was in trouble after the first kind of act but he's definitely a lot lower you know he's you know he's getting mm -hmm. ready for the climax obviously which yeah again great storytelling but it is definitely a bit of a downer um <laughs> to the whole way through really i mean start to finish it's Nothing good happens throughout this. No. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's still obviously great, and even with the problems, I mean, I think we can all agree that it is awesome. Still, there's there's enough good stuff in there to to hold it up. Um, you have any questions? You know, I like that I could answer, but you know, with knowing a little bit, or I, you know what, I, we've we've talked about it so much as we've gone through that. I I, I kind of feel like I have a pretty decent grasp of everything that's going on. And it's very, but like you said, it's, he's in some shit. Oh, and yeah. you, you know, and then it's building up, you know, then it's building up. But I do also love how the story has been told. This isn't, these things aren't happening. And there's not a, oh, he, he could have, you know, chosen door B and gotten out of this. 
he couldn't have gotten out of this. There are ways that he could have helped himself a little bit, but he's fucked. Oh, yeah. This is I all mean, predestined fuckertude. And I don't That's think, obviously, Monica was trying to kill him. I think she just no. wanted him to solve it, but she basically put him on this path to mm -hmm. being deadified. Um, oh, yeah. Which is uh, not ideal. Yeah. And, and, and that's, oof. But she's put him on this path. He has kind of rolled along this path, un path unintentionally, but, you know, with all of the white council stuff. Where I mean, that stuff, the white council stuff, he's not doing anything. He's not really breaking magical laws. He's just getting dragged into this shit. With, you know, this, this investigation, the toot toot stuff, with the, um, the toad demon stuff. Yeah. That wasn't him. Or, he got dragged into that. Morgan's a dick. Yeah, kind of a dick. yeah I can um, see that. I also wanted to pay, point to uh, a line in, it's chapter four. And if he says, um, he, when he's looking, uh, when he first meets Monica, he says, ash blonde hair that I thought must be natural after a morbid and involuntary memory of the dead woman's die job. Um, mm -hmm. I remember that. Well, I mean, it's, it's her sister. Oh. Oh, did you not catch that? No, I did. I did. I did. I, took, I caught it the first time I was reading through. I just forgot about it until you told me. Yeah. So, but, so you, you actually read this line out on the pod. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's good all on its own, but it, I, I, you know, I have to imagine there's, there's some foreshadowing there. Why would yeah. he think back to. Why would he compare the two? Yeah. Um, just a real subtle bit of foreshadowing yeah. there. That's kind of cool. Like, like the puddles. Um, I mean, he yeah. really is. This is his first fucking book. Dude's killing it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of really good stuff. You know, what, what, uh, what would you, you know, any lore that jumped out at you is kind of cool or interesting? Um, we're back to the circles again, um, which I love that, that thorough, of, thorough thread of circles and the names where he oh, yeah. couldn't hear the demon's name because of the thunder. And then Morgan saying his name almost perfectly. What we, but those, what it's, for me, what that's doing is, is putting the magical lore. It's, it's not just a, a rare occurrence. It's something that is there. It's always part of the world and everybody who's involved knows it. And I think that's fabulous. Absolutely. It's great. Uh, and it, it is, it's like, like we talked about, it's, it's a simple base to build all the magic off of, which is, which yeah. is great. Um, I really liked everything with the, uh, him doing it, you know, doing the work to figure out how the spell was done, even though we mm -hmm. don't see it, it's off camera. Um, but, uh, it, it's just, you know, again, like there's math involved or, or whatever figures involved in figuring out how to do a, uh, a spell. I just think that's an interesting take on, on magic again. Um, yeah, but it's kind of, it's, it's, this is going to be really a little nerdy. It's magical forensics. Where it's, you know, where they take the gun and they do the ballistics in the ballistics lab where they fire into the gel. They do the the crime scene reconstruction. Ooh, I, I they, like that, yeah. They, you know, they do the, um, there are so many elements of forensics where they, they do those reconstructions. They do the uh, projectile, um, I can't think of the word right now, where they put the rods in and see where all the gun shots went. And they do the ballistics in the lab where they think, you know, all of that stuff. We're trying to reconstruct what happens. He's doing magical forensics. Yeah, that's actually a great way to look at it. I love it. It's fantastic. I love it. But that was kind of the thought in my head where it's like, oh, he's, try he's doing a reconstruction. He's trying to reconstruct the, the, the manner in which these people were killed, the, the mechanism that yeah. killed them. Absolutely. Um, and that, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's great. I love it. 
So that's, you know, uh, that was one thing that I took from that. Um, but I also appreciate how he is so wary about it because we did learn that black magic basically rots your brain, you know, and, and it's a, it has a, neg a long-term negative effect. And so he's careful about it. He's cautious with it uh, because I get it. You know, it, it can, it, it's something that. It damages you. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And it's a permanent, it is, it seems to be more of a, um, a pathological damage than like the psychological damage that, you know, he, he gains from working these cases and seeing these things. So it's interesting. Okay, cool. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, my, my favorite moments, I would say, um, yeah, all, everything with the sh the shadow man in the in the street. The mm -hmm. I went to school line was great. I love that one. Um, like, you're fucking with an expert here, bro. Like yeah. you were you were just getting tarot cards. Relax. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you know the, the everything at the varsity that was just a great scene. Again, just because Marcone, and then the comparison between his, how he operates and how Dresden operates. I just love that relationship. Um, he you know, they they do. Yeah, we'll get into that in later novels, but I, I love I love those two together um, whenever they can be. Um, and then uh, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna do the, my quote last because it's a downer and that fits this uh, <laughs> this pod better. Yeah. Uh, my favorite quote. It, it again. It's it also is a bit of a downer. Let's be honest. But it's you're not too tired to talk to yourself, so you're not too tired to bail your ass out of the alligators either. Open your eyes. Oh, he went back to the alligators like Murphy. I yeah. like it. And, and that was that was uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to point that out when she mentioned ass uh, ass deep in alligators because I was like he she influences him absolutely. She influences him so much, and it's and it's I mean his his uh, loss of her loss of trust in him because he did deceive her. I think it it just had a much more it's going to have a much more significant effect on him for sure. Absolutely. Um, so my, I, my quote is, is from when he's looking around Linda's apartment and he looks in the kitchen and he sees the empty pizza boxes and uh, just uh, he, someone else. She says Linda was someone else who knew what it was to know that the only thing waiting home was a sense of loneliness. Sometimes it's comforting. Most often it isn't. I bet Linda would have understood that, but I never have a chance to know. Yeah. He's just Murphy's his only friend, basically. Yeah. And now he's just lost. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I was just thinking about, uh, and I wrote it down as you were um, going through your last chapter there, mm -hmm. how Monica finally looked him in the face and then they got locked in the soul gaze. Yeah. Like, think of the loneliness of walking through your daily life, yes. not being able to look at anyone. Like, yes. that's got to be like tortuous. Yeah. I was thinking about that when we were talking about the soul gaze, where it's just, I mean, in everyday life, you look at someone in the eye, or at least in the face, and, I, you know, in my professional life, when I talk to people, like, you, you know, both interviewing people, but also giving family members information, like, you, you, you look in their face, you look in their eyes to kind of be like, to, to be genuine. I can only imagine how off-putting that must be on a 
on a daily basis to not be able to look someone in the face. But you also, because they won't ever necessarily see what your true intention is, but you can also not see what their true intention is. You know, it's that whole I ways, like that when you look at someone's eyes, that is a window to the soul, a window to the soul, which it works for him in this, but also it's, it's, you kind of learn the genuineness of people in that. And that, and it does sound very lonely and very um, detached. From but a, it it, it kind world. of, it, when you think about it like that, it really does help explain more why he's just walking around aimlessly and ends up with the, you know, the last person that he had any sort of made any sort of connection with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, very much I, so. I rescind my complaint. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense, you know, and that's uh, yeah, the thing, absolutely. Right? Because he did have a connection with her. Because they had, they were kindred spirits and that they were, they were alone. They were very alone in this world. And that's sad. Yeah, she's, you know, the lone woman in a mm -hmm. cop police station full of men also. They yeah. have a lot of kinship in that. And now that's broken. It's going to affect both of them for sure. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. How sad. <laughs> you got anything else there before we close out? Um, yikes. Yeah, I, I, we've kind of gone over a lot of the yikes, huh? Yeah, I just got one or two more. Okay. Um, what do you got? The, uh... Da, 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 da. The nurse shit, for sure. Uh -huh. the nur yeah, the nurse stuff. You know, again, the love potion. It, it, like I said last, last week, you can play characters having flaws, but you have to... It has to be acknowledged in-universe as... Yes. It has to be... Like, I, I said punish, which I agree may not be the right word, but it, it, it sums it up. Like, it has to be... There has to be a consequence to being dumb and there just isn't with the love potion it's just played as a joke well, and, the, and this one isn't even the thing with the love potion is that it's not even something that's dumb it's not naivety it's not ignorance it's a it's a willful action it's a willful action in the description of the elements of the potion it's a willful choice and well, that her inhibitions yeah yeah and we're this this story is so important with will and oh, yeah. with with this, it's, 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 he and Bob are willfully doing this. So that's, yeah. I actually want to spend, spend a little bit of time on, we, we mentioned the, you know, the male gaze. It's actually in the description of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to just spend like a minute here going through what kind of what that is for people who may not, uh, may not know. Um, it was a term that was coined uh, in like 1973. Laura Mulvey is a feminist film theorist. Um, but the idea is um, how women are portrayed in not just, um, you know, not just books, but, you know, usually it's talking about film. And that was what she was talking about at first. But basically all art is, has passive females and active males. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of the basis for that. You know, when, when you talk about sexualizing all the women, we literally, chapter two, we sexualize a corpse with her heart her chest torn open and he's talking, you know, it's, she's sexualized. And that is a really good definition of it. Just looking at it from a very patriarchal men, men do and women are objects. Mm. And that's kind of, again, it's, it's not the worst ever. It's not, you know, it, it's like a C, C minus. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not good. And that's kind of the idea that, um, really 
It's a way of portraying, portraying and looking at women that empowers men while sexualizing and diminishing women. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is a perfect description of what happens with the love potion. Yeah, very much so. So, uh, well, and the, the thing too is with the, the whole concept of the male gaze is very uh, prevalent in noir. Oh yeah. Um, women, like you said, men do women are, uh, and that's why in older films you you had women who were femme fatales who were the villainous character, but they it was because of who they were more so than what they did. Um, there I, are, you know there were things that women you know they did things, but it, it, that's one of, it's an interesting perspective in this modern story. Um, and it's and I do want to I do want to give. Uh, you know, we, we've been giving him some credit, but Codex Alera is apparently like, there's no sexism present. That's his other series. I haven't read it, but that's what I've been told. Um, he very much is leaning heavily into noir. Like you can see yes. that with, with the dumb, you know, the cheesiness of the lines and stuff. Yes. So a lot of that sexism is kind of, in, I don't know, intentional, or I guess incidental when you're writing a noir story. Um, I wouldn't say intentional, incidental. Um, that doesn't make it okay Again, like it, it needs to be. You need it needs to be punished. I mean, it needs to be recognized that yeah. you're doing it, acknowledged, and that's I really do feel like Bob is, and that's why you know again, like I I don't want to you know say that your experience and feelings are wrong by any means. I just I I feel like Bob is is that example of like over the top, and he's supposed to be ridiculous. But again, yes. even that isn't isn't really clear. You know, he does say, no. "Ah, stop it, Bob! Yeah, you went to a sorority, ha 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 ha, big party." And but it's, it's the it's the concept of it's you know in more modern films the example would be like uh, like the grandpa who oh grandpa just says racist things okay, and it's a little bit brushed off, but it but it's very much it's there for comedic effect. Yeah, very much there for comedic effect. So, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to point that again. I, I'm not. I'm not a a professor by any means no. I, I just that's okay it, it is it, that was one of the big reasons why you know do, doing this podcast with you know a powerful woman was important because it, it is one of the main criticisms especially for the early novels that the, it is so male gaze heavy that it is hard for women to get into this series and it, it's a great series and i, I want to kind of De deconstruct it at least mm -hmm. find ways to get through it and again without excusing it by any means um you know one of the most important things you know just to, to solve problems is to point it out you know to find the problems you can't solve them without recognizing it so well, and, and the, the one thing that i can understand why it could be uncomfortable because all of these like monica sells is not a strong woman linda linda randall is a strong female she dies uh karen oh, Murphy sorry, no. is a strong female. He leaves her out of what's going on. So it's sort of like one is taken out and one is pushed aside with the strong females. You know, that, that in that sort of like, I know that, that Linda dying was probably, it's probably, it's, it's a plot device, but it is very much like, that's kind of like that division there. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. And I, 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 again, I wanted to, you mentioned that again, like the, the way they treat se you know, sex work is definitely, again, it's 2000. I, I, I don't, that doesn't make it okay. It's yeah. just culturally the norm to yeah. kind of treat it as icky and, and, and bad. And again, I, I, 
There's still people okay, today that are actually, very much they, not okay with it. But. He actually treats it much better than a lot of of works of art treat it. So that's fair. I mean, you know, perspective wise. Um, also, just to mention, as we're listing listing the women involved, would be um, Jennifer Stanton, who was threatening a wizard, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a pretty ballsy thing to do. And uh, sorry for gendered terms there, but uh, a pretty strong thing to do and powerful thing to do. And she also was punished for, you know, being uppity, basically. Mm-hmm. Powerful women, yeah. are pun- they are punished as opposed to, you know, the sexist is just... That's a very noir thing too, though. Is oh yeah, punishment sex. of women. Yeah, noir and, and horror movies. You know, mm-hmm. women, especially women who have sex, are killed. They're gonna die. Um, you know, bullshit notion of purity and stuff. Yeah. Um. Also, the uh, it's just like one line, but the gay panic in the uh, the photographer. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 My stomach. Um. But, uh, yeah, just, again, I, it, I don't think there's, you know, it's, it's one character who is clearly a kind of a douchebag, um, and douchebags are allowed to exist, because they, yeah. spoiler alert, they do! Um, <laughs> but I, I do want to shine a light on these things, I, I just yeah. think it's important. So, I can um, appreciate that. And again, that's, that's not a knock on Butcher, that one isn't. I, I do think he does goes too far into the noir sexism, um, even knowing it's intentional, I, I think it's just, it's not done as elegantly as he intended it, probably. Yeah. Um, which, again, he gets better as it goes. And it, there's still some of those aspects, but it, women are treated much more fairly as the series goes on, I believe. But I'm interested to see how, you know, you feel about it as we get through it. That's yeah, one, of the, one of the big reasons why, A, our podcast is a little bit different angle. Um, but also why I wanted to do this with you, whether or not anyone listens. Um, on that note, I do want to, you know, thank all the people who, uh, gave us a, gave, gave us a listen and hopefully, uh, you listen to this one and we see you again next week. Heck yeah. So, um, on that note, um, we got one last thing to do before we get out of here. We have Alyssa's crackpot theory of the week. Okay. This one isn't as good as my last one, but I still think, uh, it has merit. Um, we're gonna I have to do like a hundred of these. They're not all. I know, I know. Some of them I love. Be... I love this. I put you to work. <laughs> some of them might be. I might rehash some of the old ones. But in this one, Harry might be psychic. I feel like you know. I mean, there's the joke that he hit the line item um, on the Chicago PD budget is he's a psychic investigator, but or psychic consultant, whatever it is. But like, maybe he has some psychic abilities. Because he, I mean, part of it is, you know, time and place. He, why does he go back to Linda's apartment at that time? He stays there overnight. Because that's where he gets the story from. I mean, it could, it's, it's partially a plot element. But, like, the, from the, the Donnie whatever is Donnie Wise, the photographer. Like, and you write down be, his name. He's such a douchebag. Sorry. Right. No, it's all right. But like, there's some of those things where it's like, maybe there's some psychic shit there. You know, I mean, right. why not? I mean, he certainly is in the right place at the right time a lot. Exactly. Exactly. So there's my uh, crackpot theory of the week. I dig it. All right. Well, on that note, I think we've done the job here on chapters 10 through 20. Thanks for sticking around. We appreciate you. And we're looking forward to getting through this last bit. Um, 
of Stormfront and powering on through the series. Um, our first episode is creeping up on a hundred downloads from six different countries so far, um, which isn't a lot for a real podcast, but it's kind of awesome for our first foray. Um, honestly, I'm just so grateful for anyone who checked us out even once. Um, and if you are sticking around, the best way to support the project is free. Um, you can leave us a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify or whatever. Um, and you'll just be the coolest. And we really are going to have some merch soon. Uh, bookmarks. We're going to have some podcast branded bookmarks. Um, if anybody wants one, I'll take one. Uh, rectangle and penis shape will be in stock coming up soon. Well, I'm not sure what soon means, but it'll be soon. Um, this project's going to go on forever, so we'll get there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's all for this week. We'll catch up with you guys and Harry next Sunday for the finale of Stormfront. I have been Josh. And I'm Alyssa. And the podcast was on fire. And it wasn't my fault. <laughs>